It's who you are at work, after hours, and back at home, exploring every layer, finding out what makes you uniquely you, and letting that shine back out into the world. It's Authentic 365, a podcast that takes a glimpse into how some of the most inspiring people among us express themselves and make magic happen. Hello, friends. My name is Gerprit Bra. My pronouns are he, him, and I'll be your host today. I'm co-hosting with my colleague and friend, Faith McIver. Faith and I are bringing our millennial, queer, and straight perspectives to the table for this conversation. At Edelman, we focus on counsel related to societal issues through diversity, equity, and inclusion. I work with Richard Edelman, our global CEO, and chair our US LGBTQ plus ENG, Edelman Equal. And Faith works as a senior manager on our global DEI team, overseeing how Edelman's ENGs run and operate around the world. We enjoy bringing the best of Edelman's strategic advice and are proud of providing clients with counsel on complex issues such as what we will explore today surrounding the LGBTQ plus community. Joining us in today's discussion is my friend and our special guest, GLAD's very own Ross Murray. Ross is a deacon at the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Vice President of Education and Training at the GLAD Media Institute, and a founder and director of The Naming Project, a faith-based camp for LGBTQ plus youth and their allies. He has written two books, which we will talk about today, on the intersection between religion, faith, and sexuality, and has worked tirelessly to bridge between two camps often seen on opposing sides of a conversation. Ross, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you. I wanted to kick off by just asking you, I suppose, this month is uh, uh, Pride Month. We celebrate this month across the globe. We celebrate, of course, specifically in the US. I suppose the most natural place to start is by simply learning more about Ross Murray, who you are, where you were born, and also those early years of your life. Uh, sure. I mean, it's interesting to think of how I am here. Uh, this wasn't part of my intro, but I live in New York City now, but I grew up in northern Minnesota way out in the woods uh, on the border of Canada. And uh, even for my small town of about 800 people, I was considered out in the country. So it was me, my parents, my sister uh, in a uh, in a former DNR forestry station that didn't have television, had Canadian television and didn't have a telephone until I was a junior in high school. So somehow got from that into my life now living and working in New York City, uh, which also means I'm very close with my family too. That's brilliant. Oh my God, that's uh, so nice to hear as well. It's so refreshing because I'm very, very close to my family. It seems religion and faith played a big part in your early years. Describe to us your coming out story because often the, the challenges between faith and the LGBTQI plus community are seen as being on the opposing sides of most conversations. But tell us about your journey. Tell us how your um, journey was different. Sure. I think one of the things that I realized was just, I don't know, luck, providence, something else, uh, was the fact that I, one, was very close with my family. And also the most accepting place that I found in my hometown was my church. Um, and realized that coming out to my pastor as a teenager and sharing this with him and being very angsty and teenagery and gay teenagery as I did it too, um, he was very affirming. And he was also kind of very real about what challenges he foresaw uh, me facing. Uh, and, and so, you know, wanted to make sure that he was personally supportive and also just very realistic in terms of the way the world works. 
I know for a lot of people, that's not the normal experience, right? Um, sometimes the last person they want to tell um, is their pastor or their faith leader, um, and they've not found uh, that kind of home and that community. But I was also raised in that church. I was well-known because it's a small town. I'm kind of known by everyone. And my family and I were so active, we helped to make a bit of that congregation what it was, which I think did help a little of that too. There were probably other members of the congregation that were less comfortable and I didn't fully, fully come out until after I moved away from my hometown, but it let me sort of go back as an adult and kind of have a relationship with them too. And, and with my family, similarly, deciding I want to share that with my with my family after what I kind of call a initial awkward conversation, my parents accepted it, adjusted their expectations for me and the world and everything else, and have been really strong allies and supporters uh, ever since then. And they continue to live in Northern Minnesota too, which means they're a really good witness and representative for the community that is up there. There's still the challenge of putting it out there because you're so afraid of um, the conservative elements of that religion finding you or attacking you or pulling you up as a poster child as someone that is a um, that's doing something bad or evil, you know, and 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 that that fear sometimes overrides your own subconscious spirituality, right? Which is, I I I am spiritual. I do believe in faith. I do believe that there is a greater um, being or thing out there that is helping me uh, get through the day or the week or the month. But I'm not allowed to express that because you don't allow me to express it. So I can't tweet about it. I can't Instagram about it. I can't share it with immediate family members because they think that that's for them and it's not reserved for me. It's interesting because at home, my husband is an atheist like, and he was brought up a hardcore Catholic. And I was brought up as a Sikh, moderate Sikh. Um, but he has completely turned away from faith, right? Like he is like, this is now not for me. Whereas I'm kind of still, I think I'm still there, you know, I like the spiritual. So it's interesting, even within your own construction, you have to calibrate your own safety within it, right? Rosa, have you always been a person of faith? Has faith always been important to you? Or was this something that at some moment in life became important? And, and, and when did the intersection between realizing your sexuality actually specifically happen? So how did the two clash, collide, or actually coexist in, in your personal experience? Yeah, I, I always was active in our church and our faith community. And I think and this also informs some of the work that I do at the Naming Project too. You know, you're born into this, into a family and kind of just like go along with whatever faith they are. And there's some point that it kind of becomes more real for you as a grown up person, as an adult. Um, you know, a lot of us, there's these rites of passages, there's believer baptism or confirmation or um, uh, bar, bat mitzvahs, things like that, right? That's sort of like, say you're taking this on yourself. Um, and, you know, that really was the point that I kind of transitioned from I'm going with my family to I am doing this for me and I am active in all these uh, in all these ways. And that's also the time I think where I also got to start to see a little bit of the bigger, wider, both church and the world outside of my home congregation and my own town. And I think, you know, if I had to like stay within that congregation, within that community, it'd be much more stifling. But I also had a much bigger view of what existed, how big and broad and diverse the world can be outside of my tiny town that was not very um, big or broad or diverse. Uh, and so 
I think that that helped a lot with my own faith formation and let me and allowed me to take it on more myself. Um, in terms of like when, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of always know that you have feelings, but it takes a bit of growing up, a bit of learning to kind of understand the language and how to talk about that. Um, and so I very clunkily and um, had a difficult time talking about it as a teenager, as I got more into um, uh, later teens, uh, college age, was able to articulate and put words to that. And that just takes practice of saying that to people that you trust, who also can listen to you and hear what you're saying and hear how you're kind of refining it as you're realizing what words you want to use for yourselves. It's one of the reasons why through the naming project, and I sort of give this advice, like, you know, we listen and we accept what a young person says about themselves, uh, even if they're going to come back to us later and tell us something that contradicts what they told us before, because in some ways they might be figuring that out. And that's what adolescence is for, is figuring that out for yourself. Yeah. And I, I should probably also, when we were kind of getting ready for this episode, we talked a little bit about, this is a, during a time when social media and the internet probably wasn't as prevalent as it is uh, right now. And so seeing people that looked or sounded or behaved uh, from a sexual identity perspective similar to you, it, it was very rare, you know? So the, the, the microcosm in which you existed, the, this community in which you existed was your reality. And so to understand that there was something else outside there, it was pretty challenging. I, I want you to just pivot a little bit and speak a little about your college years, because I suppose when you come through those adolescent years, you then move from not necessarily knowing and then you come into college and I suppose these conversations become much more prominent, much more clear, and also much more forceful. Talk to me about how college was different, if it was at all. Right. I think, I mean, I think going into the young adult years kind of is actually where, when you talked about before, like that, that crashing of your sexual sexuality and your religion, things like that, this is where it actually happened a bit more. So I, I went to a private um, uh, Christian college, Lutheran school. Uh, I got a degree in youth and family ministry. Once again, I was very involved. Um, and I also decided that when I moved from my small town in Northern Minnesota to the big metropolitan area of Minneapolis, I was going to use that as my way of, I'm just going to be out now. Instead of telling, you know, telling people that I was gay and having them to like unlearn what they thought they knew and relearn, I could just kind of make this part of what I sort of told people up front. Um, and it would impact, uh, you know, and then they could just um, they could just kind of treat me however they were going to treat me from there. In fact, I made it a tactic to tell some very gossipy girls, and they told everyone else for me, so I didn't have to do the work of actually telling other people and doing the coming out process myself. Um, and I was, you know, I wanted to be myself. I wanted to represent all parts of these in my life, and I wanted to be very honest with people. And so um, I. So I, you know, did that through college, actually was able to um, help convince some people to be less anti-LGBTQ because they saw me as a witness, right? They saw, oh, you you seem, you don't fit the stereotypes that I had for a person too. One was my own roommate um, and one was my college advisor. And realizing through both of that coming out to them in very careful strategic ways, helped them to rethink all the assumptions that they had. Um, I probably through those experiences, got a little bit cocky and probably told myself that it's my own natural charm and charisma that changed these people's hearts and minds and good job for me. And so after college, I joined this, um, this traveling musical ministry team, this thing where you like, 
uh, I don't know if other religions have this, probably not, I hope not, where you sort of like kind of live out of a van, do programs at churches where you're like singing songs and doing puppet shows and sharing messages. And because I'd had such a good experience just being honest and being myself in college, I carried that into this program. And that was where I finally encountered people that said, you are desecrating this ministry, uh, supporters can't handle this, you're becoming a disruption, um, you know, things like that, and eventually getting kicked out from that organization after about three, four months uh, with them. Again, just because I was kind of being honest and being myself in that community. And that made me realize, you know, is my problem with God? Not really, because I've had a really good experience with God. And quite frankly, even with the church up till that point, my problem was with other people, right? And the people was where the problem was. And churches are also human institutions um, and, and people that are trying their best, but they're still trying. And so that was what actually sent me on a trajectory, probably away from what was probably going to be kind of a quiet, churchy little life into one that that bridges much more toward advocacy for the LGBTQ community, both in the church to make it more welcoming and inclusive. And then also now that I'm at GLAAD um, in the bigger, broader, wider world as well. Yeah. And actually I'm going to pivot to that particular moment for my final question. How, how do you go from a uh, small community going through all of these challenges, going through the experience that you've been uh, describing to us at a college level to then saying, okay, let's take this national and potentially even global, and let's let's try and have this conversation at this huge macro level through GLAD. How did that happen? I mean, it's a progression, right? So I had my experience with the music ministry team from that, and again, from my own, you know, my own personal experience. And in terms of, so I, like, my disclaimer is like, in terms of acts of discrimination people have faced that's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And that isn't that bad, right? Compared to what, what we have seen other people have to experience too. But it was enough for me to say, oh, even with all this privilege that I have, I still can't like get through this system or change people's minds or do something. So what are we going to do and build um, from there? I got invited into a group that said, we heard what happened to you with this program. And we are working on making the Lutheran church more welcome and inclusive. Do you want to join us? And I did for like the local chapter community. So just working in the Twin Cities um, and eventually working with the organization that was trying to work overall with the Lutheran church. And over time with them in various roles, helped to change policy, lift bans on LGBTQ people um, serving as clergy. You know, that was still, it was national, but it's national within one particular church body, right? The Lutherans are freaking out about what this means, but also most people don't know what Lutherans are. So um, when the opening at GLAD came up, that was a way to say, how do we take these same skills that look at influence, that look at storytelling, that look at conversations, representation, and use that to change hearts and minds? Um, and GLAD is an organization that does that. You know, we're not a we're not a political organization, we're not a legal organization, but I spend a lot of time thinking about influence. Who can get people to do something? Um, who can convince them that this is the right thing to do or the right, you know, uh, right information to know about people and understand them so then they can make choices that are for their uh, well-being? And 
And it's not that different than church work, right? It is that same sort of like, what's the teaching? What's the preaching? What's the messaging? What's the storytelling? We do all those things within our, um, our religion. And we do all of that through the media as we're influencing culture as well. And so, it, you know, it kind of just was this sort of growth from like my own experience to a community into something that was national, but also still kind of limited into now, you know, for the United States and even globally too, you know, who's, uh, who's got influence over how we think and how we feel about LGBTQ people. Ross, it's been great hearing from you so far. Uh, my name is Faith McIver and I will be jumping in. My pronouns are she, her, hers. My first question for you is, now, Ross, you took education and sort of educating a step further, and you authored two books. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your first book and what that focuses on? Sure. The first book is based on my work and experience with the Naming Project, which is the LGBTQ youth ministry. It's a summer camp. Um, it is, just as a plug, it is July 23rd to 28th in central Minnesota. Registration still open. If depending on when you're listening to this. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been running this church camp. We've been running this LGBTQ youth ministry for a long time. And I get questions about, what do I do? I have a child that just came out. I have a child who's transgender. How do we do this on a trip? How do you do sleeping arrangements, right? Like all those kind of like, how do I, how do I deal with LGBTQ youth? Um, and the book was designed to address those questions. It doesn't really, you know, tell you exactly what to do because, Context is different, makeup is different, what works for one thing doesn't work in another setting. Um, but instead, it helps you to think through what's the values that I have, and what are the ways that I make the decisions, so that when I do make decisions about how to include and protect LGBTQ youth in my program, then, um, you know, then we can make decisions based on that. Um, and so the book has been really used, you know, it's kind of niche. It's designed for adults who work with LGBTQ youth in church settings. So youth ministry people. Um, and, and, you know, from there, you kind of start to see what are the th things that we do in our own programming and our own worship. And then also, what are the things that we do for society to make the society more inclusive and safe for LGBTQ youth? Awesome. Um, and then to follow up, I know you also have a second book that was released just one month ago. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It's titled The Everyday Advocate Living Out Your Calling to Social Justice. Can you talk about the inspiration behind writing that book and share maybe two or three takeaways that readers may get out of it? Yeah, I think a couple things happened. One, when I ended the first book, you know, I, I sort of made this case that said, we can't just think about LGBTQ youth ministry only for the youth that come to our churches, because more and more young people are not, for whatever reason, not coming to our churches. So how do we start thinking about youth ministry as something that is out there in the world to make it better and safer and help to kind of make the case for, um, for that? And then I think I know a lot of well-meaning mainline, generally white Christian-y folks can kind of get caught up in their own thoughts and feelings of a general, things are so wrong in this world, right? They hear news about um, 500 plus anti-LGBTQ bills. They hear about gun violence. They hear about climate change. They hear about um, racism, white supremacy being embedded in all parts of our society. And they kind of just have this like, it's overwhelming 
and I don't know what to do about it. And I wanted this book to be kind of start to get people motivated to think about what are the things that they can do. And, and the biggest kind of takeaway is don't feel isolated. If you are concerned about something, even if you're in a teeny tiny town, um, there are other people that also care about this and you need to find the other people that also care. Um, because then you at least have allies, you at least have sounding boards. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it's going to be your friends and neighbors. Sometimes it's going to be an organization, right? There's always an organization that is working on something and they always need or want your help and support. Um, and so doing that is kind of really that first step of just getting out of the inertia of just sitting, you know, in what gets called analysis paralysis or just overwhelmed by the state of the world, like figure out the thing you can do. Um, and then how do we, how do we expand that? So we've met with other people, we get involved with an organization. Do we try to bring our congregation along with it? Do we need to create something new? Do we help to invite other people into this movement as well? And then we spend a lot of time. These are skills that I teach at my job at GLAD is also who are the people that we're trying to reach and what's the best way to reach them? So, you know, a target audience, who are the people most likely to listen to you and to learn from what you have to say? How do we get to them? What are the, what's the mind frame that they have? What's their understanding of the issue? Uh, what do they think and how much do we know about them so that we can tailor how we're going to talk about this with them? Um, and then, you know, once they get it, then we can say, great, join us. Um, easy asks tweet this, sign this petition, right? Harder ask, show up at this rally, make a phone call to your legislative leaders, come to this rally, right? We can give bigger and bigger asks, but if we kind of know where people are at, we can tailor what we expect from them in terms of what we know. And then when they do the thing we want them to do, my fear is we say thank you, and then we give them the next hardest thing to do. So it's always this like ratcheting up of like, Thank you for thank you for tweeting. Please come to the rally. I'm really glad you came to the rally. Now I need you to call your elected leader. Now that you've call, called your elected leader and you have a relationship with them, you want to keep doing that all the time, right? And so we do stuff like that to try to keep it going. And it really is that like um, it is that organizing, you know, sort of principle that tries to meet people where they're at, but also always just keeps pushing them forward. Because I believe, you know, for as much as I can see probably what we like complain about the ails of the world that, um, that, that bug us. If we shifted our society like this much, sorry, this is audio. I'm shifting a bell curve, just like ever a few degrees to the right, that changes everything. Right. Um, and it's that sort of like long-term momentum that I like to think about. Um, even though I know there's some stuff that just is always immediate that's coming up. Yeah, I love that meeting people where they are and then taking them on the journey is definitely critically important. Um, one thing that I will note for you is that we are going to be purchasing and adding uh, copies of your, your most recent book to our Edelman offices. Yep. And so we're going to make them available for employees uh, to also, you know, join this journey um, and, and keep moving forward with you. That's lovely. Thank you. Yeah, I hope please, I, I hope people read it and, um, you know, find it helpful and practical. I always feel like my books are only successful if people can read them and say, okay, I have a good sense of what I can do now. Yeah, for sure. Um, my next question um, is actually a little more tailored to faith and religion. 
Um, and I know that faith, religion, and various spiritual practices look different um, around the world. Could you share your perspective on creating more interfaith communities at work and just uh, building communities? Yeah, it's interesting. So I've been at Glad now for 12 years. Um, and in fact, I will issue a little correction in your bio of me too. I'm now a vice president for the Glad Media Institute, not a senior director. And yet, even as I move on from all those things, I still don't like let go of the stuff I was doing. So my first job at GLAAD was director of religion, faith, and values. Um, and I meant, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Lutheran deacon. Um, I'm very, you know, uh, I'm very positioned um, kind of within my own faith community. And yet I realize for the work that I'm doing, especially advocacy work that is for the good of the world, right? Um, that that gets to be so important that we have to work with people where they are. And it's the same kind of thing about mindset um, and about theology and about ecclesiology or like church politics, right? Um, the way we, there's an LGBTQ argument for inclusion that can be made, that it, that it works well for Lutherans or Baptists or Muslims or Sikhs or Jews, but they have to sound authentic to the communities from which they come from. Um, I can't make a really good Muslim argument. Um, I, you know, I, and I, I know what my audience is, but when we start working together with other leaders that know their community well, and we all know what we're working on together, then everyone can take that and tailor it toward the community that they're trying to reach. And I think that's why like advocacy comes important. Even LGBTQ conversations, they can't all look the same. Um, and that's partly just because these different religions have different worldviews, have different um, understandings. And even I get very practical. I was very practical when I had this job at GLAD too, right? Like I didn't know the theology of every religion, but I also had a pretty good idea of what the structure was, what the, um, what the decision-making process is. If something is going to shift, what's the way in which that's going to happen? And what are the realistic steps that get us to that place? Um, some of which would be much more long-term and some of which might be able to be a bit more short-term. Um, and so as I think about what that looks like, I think that gets really important in that whole interreligious dialogue. And then when you add the international component too, which always fascinates me too, is you realize how much in America and everywhere else, how much um, religion and culture are so very like tied together um, that sometimes you look at it and you don't necessarily know, is that a cultural thing or is that a religion thing? Um, because the two really reinforce each other a lot. When, when I was in college, I took a class and I was in Thailand and someone said, to be Thai is to be Buddhist. And to be Buddhist is to be Thai, right? Like those things just reinforce each other in a particular way. Um, so once again, you have to do that kind of localization, customization, um, and not make a cookie cutter approach to this because we really want to know, um, we want to know who we're working with and what's the best way that we help them um, to do their best work within their own communities. I've always been spiritual. Um, and it's interesting that for me, religion and sexuality at some point did become binary um, you know um, I'm a from a, the Indian religions I, my family brought me up as Sikh it's one of the three main uh, Indian religions with Hinduism Buddhism and Sikhism and so at some point I always felt that actually I had to take a decision between being gay or being a member of faith but as you so eloquently said Ross 
um, actually the institution and the religion uh, does not uh, say that I can or cannot be Sikh. It's a uh, it's the people sometimes within it that that are making those decisions uh, and making those uh, outputs, fo- focusing those outputs. So, you know, it's so important to hear from people like you that these are not binary consequences. We can be both. We can also be people of faith as well as be uh, people who are gay or queer. So thank you for sharing that. I love that. One thing that we often say is there's no one size fits all approach to a lot of the work that we're doing. And and I think you just made that point very clear. My final question is actually something that's more forward looking. So what are some goals or aspirations you have for promoting greater understanding and acceptance of LGBTQ plus individuals from religious or interfaith backgrounds? Yeah, this is good. I mean, especially it's interesting having this conversation in the middle of 2023 and just kind of the, the, it hasn't been the one year, the many years that we've been having. Um, and that's not an LGBTQ thing. That's just kind of an overall society thing. Um, when I want to dream, like first I, I want to stop the hemorrhaging, which sounds terrible to word it that way. Um, there's, we're kind of dealing with a really, really big onslaught of an organized and coordinated um, anti-LGBTQ effort, often that uses the language of religion, especially Christianity. Um, So one, I want that to stop. But the other thing I think that's important, and also why I wrote the book, is I want to see much more of that proactive, pro-LGBTQ people of faith and going out there um, with a faith motivation to advocate for and to lift up the stories of and to call for the protection for LGBTQ people. We kind of still are getting the like, oh, these inclusive places are kind of novel or novelties, right? Um, and they're one-offs and they're sort of really interesting. And I think I want to think through how we sort of recapture that prophetic, I'm going to say overall progressive type movement that does look at the protection that comes from like the Catholic worker movement or the motivation that Martin Luther King Jr. used and and figure out ways that that we don't just leave that in the historic past, but figure out how we proactively do that for ourselves here and now, because I think it's needed really, really strongly here and now. And we've kind of unlearned it for a while and need an opportunity to pick that back up. So I'm always wanting to see like, who are the proactive pro LGBTQ faith voices? And then how much attention are they getting in our bigger, broader society? Yeah. And I think that's the piece that, that Ross really touched on in terms of uh, when you're first introduced to faith and religion, it really is based on your family, your family's point of view and, and those things. And you're sort of indoctrinated into that. And then as you get older, you start to realize like, wait, if you are a person that is faithful or spiritual, you start to think like, oh, wow, this is something that matters to me. Like I do care about what else is out there or I do want to believe in something that's bigger than myself. And I think navigating that is also just part of that adulthood journey that we all have to to get on and whether you decide to hop on the bandwagon and follow spirituality and faith, that's one thing. But also if you do decide to practice atheism or if you are agnostic, that's also just a choice that um, you know we're all free to make. And I think at the end of the day, what really unites us is our freedom to make those choices for ourselves. And yeah. 
Thank you, Ross. And thank you, Faith, for those fantastic questions. Ross, let me take the opportunity for uh, to thank you for making the time and for continuing to share your experience and learnings with us. Um, I have the pleasure of now calling you a friend, um, and I'm hopeful that through this process, many more will be able to tune into your thoughts, your your ideas, and of course, your experiences and learn from them. And so I'm grateful that you took the time for us and our team. Um, I also just want to take the opportunity to say thank you to the DEI team at Edelman, the Edelman Equal Network, the Edelman Leadership Team, and of course, to our LGBTQ plus community. These are challenging times, but let's continue to move forward in pride. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. Many thanks to you for working with us. And until next time, keep it authentic. All day, every day. Authentic 365 is brought to you by global communications firm, Edelman.